Vaccine-induced myocarditis in children results in damage that lasts for many months afterwards. Come on, let's go take a look at this disturbing news. Hello, 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 everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson here with episode 55 for you. Today we're talking about myocarditis induced by vaccines. This would be the Pfizer mRNA vaccine in children. It's often been described as mild or transient or uh, something not to really worry about. <clears throat> it's not the case that uh, there's detectable damage uh, for three to eight months afterwards. Let's go take a look at that now. All right. Uh, here's the episode. Here's the paper. Persistent cardiac MRI findings in a cohort of adolescents with post-COVID-19 mRNA vaccine myopericarditis. That's the, the lining of the heart on the outside. So um, good study here. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of authors on it. A couple of abbreviations we need to know about here. Oh, I'm sorry. This is in the Journal of Pediatrics. Two abbreviations, LGE, late gadolinium enhancement. Gadolinium is an element. It's an element that's uh, put into a drug that uh, formulation that they inject in your body that helps them image what's going on inside your body using an MRI machine. <clears throat> As CMR, you're going to see this abbreviation in the study, that's cardiac magnetic resonance imaging. So think of it maybe as a little CMRI. If you're used to MRIs, CMR is a MRI, but they're just looking at the heart. <clears throat> All right, let's go to the study now and make sure I got my drawn tool out here just in case I need it. There we go. So first up, uh, the methods. The case review included patients younger than 18 years of age. It's part one. These children presented to Seattle Children's Hospital with chest pain and elevated serum troponin levels, troponin being a marker of heart injury. If you um, look in the blood and you see elevated troponin levels, it's a sign something's not good is going on, <clears throat> usually within the heart. Within one week of receiving the second dose of the Pfizer COVID mRNA vaccine, that's the study. So kids under 18... They've presented to the hospital, and uh, they've had at least the second dose of this, this mRNA vaccine. All right. Uh, all patients were evaluated in a variety of ways. All patients underwent this CMR, the cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, within one week of the initial presentation. And they were able to have a repeat CMR imaging three to eight months follow-up. So they're getting a snapshot when they first presented and then a snapshot later. Now we can compare those two snapshots. Um, <clears throat> patients were excluded if they did not undergo that CMR or did not have the follow-up CMR, so nothing to compare. So that's the study. They're looking for data, for evidence. Uh, this is non-invasive evidence, as they would call it. I mean, you're able to take this, this, these shots and look at the heart in a living human uh, while they're on their magnetic resonance imaging table. So that's the study that they did. That's the methods. Um, as we go down here, uh, whoops, that's supposed to say results. All right, uh, so the results here, median hospital length of stay was uh, two days. So again, they would say, oh, the kids were only in the hospital two days. They, meaning people are trying to minimize this actually very serious thing that happens. So if your child ends up in the hospital with cardiomyopathy as a result of one of these vaccines, you know who's on the hook for that, right? Who bears the burden of that? Your child, of course, financially, your family. So uh, at any rate, um, let's not minimize this because it's not, this study says we can't minimize this. It's a very serious thing. 
all patients underwent follow-up CMR at three to eight months after their initial study. So the median was around 3.7 months, but as late as 8.1 months, as early as 2.8 months. The results were compared, (coughs) excuse me, in table one, um, 11 patients at this follow-up, that's 68.8%. So that's just, it's two-thirds. Let's call it two-thirds, had persistent LGE, that's late gadolinium enhancement. We're going to talk about that in just a second. And then we're going to compare all of this by the end of this program to what the CDC just did in terms of rejiggering, re-reporting the number of people who had actually died of COVID. Of course, walking all of those numbers back in the case of, of children, a lot. So we're going to compare these because we want to be able to compare risk. What is the risk of this side effect? Um, we can call it rare, maybe, depending on how we define rare, but it's certainly not mild anymore. All right. Um, although there was, they did note over that time frame, there was a significant decrease in the quantifiable LGEs. That's the late gadolinium enhancements. So they were at about eight um, in the initial study. Oh, so they, they went down to about eight from the initial study result of about 13.8. So that's a pretty big reduction, but still there still there. And we're going to talk about what that means. This last sentence is kind of interesting. They say, uh, the patient, so this is singular, who received IVIG alone, and one patient who received IVIG plus corticosteroid, they had a resolution of LGE, the other had persistence of LGE. So possibly the corticosteroids, what they're saying here, were important And, uh, of course, corticosteroids are very, very well indicated for people who are suffering from the pulmonary aspects of COVID. Getting those corticosteroids to dial down the immune response, your immune system isn't freaking out. Destroying lung tissue, destroying heart tissue seems to be important. So there's, I mean, this is just an N of one, but uh, I think it would say here that corticosteroids look like a, a solid thing you should be exploring if you have a patient present with... Uh, this cardiomyopathy or the myoperic cardiomyopathy. Um, so let's talk about this late gadolinium enhancement for just a second. What, what what exactly is this? So here's a paper from 2013 I found, I think did an okay job explaining this. Actually, a pretty good job. Uh, this is in uh, Current Cardiology Review. Quote from the abstract, late gadolinium enhancement is a useful tool for scar detection based on differences in the volume of distribution of gadolinium, an extracellular agent. So that means this stuff isn't being taken up in the cells. You're not imaging the insides of the cells. You're imaging extracellular environments. So normally the cells are all packed really tight like this. But if you have a scar forming, often there's a lot of um, tissue that forms that scar tissue. It's not actually living cells. It's extracellular space. It's it's composed of scar um well, the building blocks of the scars, so fibrin and uh, other sort of extracellular scaffolding proteins. So as the scar develops, the cells get further and further apart, and that allows this gadolinium to sneak in there as an imaging agent in that space between. So the more you see of this, the bigger the scar. So it's, it's actually detecting scar formation because it's an extracellular imaging agent. All right. Uh, the presence of fibrosis in the myocardium amenable to be detected with LGE, MRI, is found not only in ischemic cardiomyopathy, in which it offers information regarding viability and prognosis, but also in a wide variety of non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. Now, what does that mean? Ischemia is the loss of oxygen, typically a clot. 
would form in a key artery and it blocks it. And so all the downstream tissue isn't being properly oxygenated because the blood can't get there. So that tissue is said to be ischemic. And if it gets injured by that, if the block lasts too long, this tissue actually dies. And that's an ischemic injury. So they're saying here that not only can you detect that ischemic injury in a cardiomyopathy, but also a wide variety of non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, that would be ones that we would see in, um, in when your immune system has infiltrated the heart and has damaged it the same way that your immune system, again, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. We all love our immune system. It does an amazing job. And sometimes that job, it does it a little too well. Sometimes it overreacts. That's why we use things like corticosteroids to dial back the immune response because it's doing its job, but just too much and it causes damage. So giving it a little help there to dial it back. At any rate, they're saying here LGE, late gadolinium enhancement, is useful for detecting scar formation, whether it came from an ischemic injury or other injuries like the itis, the myocarditis, the inflammation that's happening in the hearts as a result of, in some patients, rare, we could say, but in some patients as a result of the M RNA vaccination, at least in this case, the Pfizer vaccine. That's all they really studied here. All right. Uh, this is uh, from that um, same article. It says hyper enhancement on LGE, hyper enhancement, meaning we see a really bright, you know, we see it clearly in the image, has a close correlation to histopathology proven myocardial necrosis histopathology. We're looking at the slides of actual, I'll show you some of these in just a second. We're looking at the actual cells under magnification. We looked at the histopathology, pathology. We can see the cells are damaged or dying or distressed. Something is wrong with them. In proven myocardial necrosis, necrosis is death of the myocardium, which are the heart muscle cells. So hyperenhancement of LGE has a close correlation, meaning we see this quite often when we can prove through histopathology that there's been myocardial necrosis. So when we see the LGE, it's not good. It means damage has occurred in the heart tissue. That's what this study is telling us. All right, carrying on, let's go here. So in the discussion from this paper in the Journal of Pediatrics, they say, uh, they, so this wasn't a huge, huge study. They, they, I think they had 30 some patients show up after they excluded because people either didn't get one or both of the, the CMRs. They ended up with um, 15 patients, I believe, 16 total, but 15, I think, made it through to the end. We previously reported, now this study, I think, was 16 patients total. So they had previously reported 15 patients with clinically suspected SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccine-induced myopericarditis. All patients had an abnormal CMR with edema and or LGE. Edema is just a, it's fluid in between the tissue. It's swelling the, the tissue because of uh, fluid in there. Usually a sign that your capillaries or your vessels are leaking and they're, they're not in tight anymore because there's an uh, immune response, an inflammatory response. Uh, in addition to clinical symptoms and troponin elevation. All right. Quote, in yellow, we have since established a clinical protocol for serial, one, two, CMR performance in these patients consistent with the American Heart Association statement that stressed the risk of sudden cardiac death, particularly with exercise, while active inflammation is present. Our patients were restricted from exercise on discharge. End quote. This should be the advice given 
everyone, particularly young males, if we know that there's a high risk of exercise-induced stress in the hearts that could cause bad outcomes, in particularly the first two weeks after the first, but especially the second shot, then it ought to be standard advice. Informed consent ought to be, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I see you're bringing your son in here or your daughter. We should really go both ways, but really this, this, yes, your son or your daughter, they're young. Boys get hit much, much harder um, with this. So the advice would be they're, they're getting their first, their second shot for the next two weeks. No sports, lay low, take it easy, right? That ought to be part of fully informed consent on this. I'm not sure how, how much that is, but I bet it's pretty rare to get that level of informed consent. Why? Because somebody somewhere has made the decision that providing that level of information might cause some concern. Parents might ask a follow-up question like, why? What, what's, what's the issue here? And then they might ask really awkward questions like, well, can you tell me what the risk of that is compared to the actual risk of a bad outcome from COVID? Can I see the data? And that's where the story falls apart. Uh, that's a, for whatever reason, um, we do not have, I'll, I'll show you that data. You know what? I'll show you that data in just a minute. All right. Continuing quote, although symptoms were transient and most patients appeared to respond to treatment solely with NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, um, ibuprofen, we demonstrated persistence of abnormal findings on CMR at follow-up in most patients albeit with improvement in the extent of LGE, but LGE was there. And as a reminder, what do we know about LGE? We know that it has a close correlation with histopathology. That means at the cellular level, we're seeing cell death. Okay? So that's, that's what they noted there. Now, where do we go with all this? Uh, continuing their discussion, they said the presence of LGE is an indicator of cardiac injury. We know that now. And fibrosis. Fibrosis is scar tissue, which is a result of cardiac injury, and has been strongly associated with worse prognosis in patients with classical acute myocarditis. Now, we don't know, is, uh, is this myocarditis from these mRNA vaccines the same as classical acute myocarditis? Don't know that. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Maybe it's much less uh, bad. We don't know. However, we really ought to know. And there were two years into this, and I'm not yet, this is, you know, individual doctors have to note this stuff, start doing their investigations. What is the CDC doing with all of its billions of dollars, <laughs> we could ask, or the FDA? Um, where, where are the studies that, are, that ought to have been run the minute we had our first myocarditis signal, particularly in children, particularly? Remember that doctor on the FDA panel who said, well, we don't know how much harm these vaccines are going to do in children. We just have to give it to them. That's how we'll find out, right? That cavalier attitude has no place in my society. Shouldn't have any place in anybody's society. This, I mean, these, it's potential. What they're saying here is strongly associated with worse prognosis in classical acute myocarditis, a worse prognosis, a prognosis when your heart tissue dies, that is for the rest of your life. That is a lifelong impairment. That's not like a, well, it was a bad prognosis, but they got better. They're saying here, not so much. Um, the majority, more than two-thirds of the patients, still had LGE at their three- to eight-month follow-up. So they say here, continuing, quote, the persistence of LGE over time and its prognostic value is less well-established. So they don't know. What does it mean that you have LGE at your initial 
appointment and you have it at your follow-up months later. Don't know. Um, Malik et al. found that in a cohort of 18 patients with myocarditis, nearly 70% had persistent CMR changes at a median follow-up time of seven months. That's consistent with what they just found. Dubie et al. found similar findings in their cohort of 12 pediatric patients with persistence of LGE in all patients despite resolution of edema. Prognostic meaning of LGE in vaccine-associated myopericarditis requires further study. Not should have some. This is, this, this is how doctors and scientists speak. This is strong language. Requires. It absolutely requires further study. Lots of further study. But I would suggest we have to go even further than that because we now have this data, right? And to put this in context, remember, this is the, we've just been bombarded with this information. Medscape in uh, March of 29 of 2022. Hmm. That's, um, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, this one came from January 7th. I don't know how that Tuesday, that was probably the date I pulled this. Yeah, that was. Look at the Steve Stiles writes in Medscape, January 7th, 2022. COVID, va- COVID vaccine myocarditis, rare, mild, usually a guy thing. It is a guy thing, usually. But the mild word, SIDRAP here, which is the University of Minnesota, COVID vaccine-related myocarditis is rare, usually mild, studies say. That's from October of 2021. Here in December of 2021 in um, Utah University of Health, here we have young people recover quickly from rare myocarditis side effect of COVID-19 vaccine. So I'm hoping that all of the authors of these papers are, are busy amending these, correcting these, retracting these, um, saying, hey, you know, that's what we thought we knew at the time, but now we have better data because actually it turns out we have LGE showing up in uh, these young patients many months later. And so that we can't, this whole mild thing though, was really marketed and marketed heavily And we didn't have data for it at that point in time. These should have been couched, should have been more carefully presented, to be honest. Really should have been. Wasn't. So, um, hey, just as a real quick reminder for everybody, uh, at Peak Prosperity, if you like this kind of information, you want to go deeper, and you like resilience, and you're worried about where the world is going in terms of, well, the economy energy, environment, a lot of big things. This is what I do, and this is what my community does, is we come together and we talk about these things. And so uh, here are the levels of uh, engagement uh, and subscriptions that we offer to our paying subscribers at Peak Prosperity who support me and allow me to do what I do so I can bring these sorts of analyses to the world, um, which I love doing. It's awesome. Carrying on, Marty McCary says CDC has a civic duty to do rigorous, rigorously to rigorously study the long-term effects of vaccine-induced myocarditis. Um, so he's noting this particular thing in JPEDs here. Is the CDC on the job, though, we could ask? No, because people like Marty have to go out and um, nudge and nudge and bump and nudge and see if they can get that um, going forward. And by the way, uh, this is what here, come on over here, where's my, right here. Ah, so you see these arrows. If you see this little white smear right there, let me take that away so you can see it more easily. That little white smear shouldn't be there. Uh, here in follow-up, we see that that little white smear is a lot less intense. Um, so hopefully their machines are all calibrated quickly, correctly. And, oops, let me just get back to that. Um 
so yeah, you can see that those 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 white those little white pieces there. That's in the pericardium around that's the sac around the heart. The LV here, this is the left ventricle of the heart. This would be the right ventricle here. So we're taking a longitudinal, looking down the, the long axis of the heart, not from the top. And um, yeah, so you can see, but there's still some stuff that shouldn't be there uh, in that white contrast that we see. All right. So let's talk about how this stuff really isn't mild. That was in children. We're seeing more and more of these. Here's a letter. It's correspondence to JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, this is to the editor here, September 30th of 2021. By the way, um, this would be the kind of thing where somebody writing an article about mild um, myocarditis could have read this article back in September of 2021 and said, quote, you know, here they're reporting two cases of histologically confirmed myocarditis, meaning they actually have a biopsy and or an autopsy result to look at that. And I want to show you what that looks like. So we have that, share that understanding. Um, patient one was a 45 year old woman without viral prodrome. Um, they couldn't find any evidence of virus in her at all presented with dyspnea and dyspnea's 10 days after first dose of the vaccination uh, in yellow quote, an endomyocardial biopsy, a biopsy taken from a living person. They got it from the inside of the heart. A specimen showed an inflammatory infiltrate predominantly composed of T-cells and macrophages admixed with eosinophils, B-cells, plasma cells. Um, she was discharged, so she did make it, but she was in the hospital for seven days. Um, so, uh, you know, in the hospital for a week from the first shot. Highly recommend she not get the second shot. Should get a medical exclusion for that second shot for sure. Uh, if I'm her, I, no way I'm taking. I'm going, not going anywhere near any of these shots. Not the second, not the boosters, none of it. So, but when we see T cells, we see macrophages, eosinophils, B cells, plasma cells. These are all the immune system cells that get recruited and they come to an area where there's inflammation, where it believes it has to fight a fight against a foreign invader, right? So in this case, recruited to the heart for some reason, and all of these um, uh, cells are hanging out there. And these are the kinds of cells that can do a lot of damage um, if they run out of control. So patient two is a 42-year-old man presented again with dyspnea, chest pain, two weeks after um, mRNA 1273, which is Moderna, second dose. Again, no viral prodrome, um, PCR test negative for SARS-CoV-2, tachycardia, a fever, um, his electrocardiogram showed diffused ST segment elevation. So his, his echo cardi electrocardiogram, is he's got a weird rhythm going on here. Uh, in yellow, quote, cardiogenic shock developed in the patient. He died three days after presentation. An autopsy revealed biventricular, both sides, uh, myocarditis, an inflammatory infiltrate admixed, again, with macrophages, T cells, eosinophils, B cells observed a finding similar to that in patient one. So what we're seeing here is exactly what we saw when I showed you this case about uh, this horrifying case of uh, Brandon Watt, uh, who died from histiocytic uh, lymphocytic myocarditis, big mouthful there, but uh, his heart was shot through with all of these same findings of macrophages, T cells, killer T cells, things like that. Um, and again, this was healthy, completely healthy dude, got the shots, died. 
uh, very tragic case. So this is what this stuff looks like. So this, when I say histology, we're looking under microscope, under high magnification at cells that have been taken out of a body, embedded in paraffin, sliced real thin, stained, so we can see what kind of cells are there. And so here, what they're pointing out here in the big broad arrows right here, these are actually dead myocytes. Um, they've been severely injured. They don't have this, uh, a, a healthy myocyte has these cross striations, looks good. These are sort of puffy and, and diffuse and really not happy at all. And as well, they're showing here with the arrowheads, eosinophils, um, so named because they take up the stain eosin and stain bright red, like you see right at the tip of that one right there. Um, and uh, as well, uh, just all sorts of other white blood cells. All those little dark dots you see are mostly the nuclei of white blood cells that are just packed into the heart tissue, trying to help, but not helping. So here we have, again, confirming what we're seeing in those children with the LGE is this idea that there are inflammatory response cells who are coming in and creating damage in the hearts. Here we have actual um, histological examination of that. And I did present this, uh, this was in the episode about 133X myocarditis. You can look at that on the videos here, talking about how the myocarditis risk is elevated by a factor of 133 times in that two-week window, particularly for young people, particularly young men or boys. So that two-week window, there's 133 higher chance than baseline than what you would expect and I put that in this episode um, that this slide comes from. And so what they found here um, in your lymphohistocytic uh, myocarditis, a case report, uh, you see CD3 plus and CD8 plus cytotoxic cells. Here's just showing how they're stained there. Uh, this is what you see all these dark blue nuclei in here again from the heart. See that? And when they stain them, they find, who are those cells? Oh, here they are. Um, they happen to be macrophages, and they happen to be these CD3 plus T cells, which includes the cytotoxic cells. They come in and they just kill things because they think the cells they're killing, which are your own cells, are infected with something that the body really doesn't want to have. So they think, feeling from the outside, these cells have a virus inside of them. And they're like, you know what? Put a bullet in that and um, take it out. So that's what they do. And this is sort of what it would look like. You would see all these different things. Again, you see these eosinophils, you see these neutrophils, you've got um, uh, inflammatory cell infiltrate, which is all these white spots you see in between everything up here, inflammatory cell infiltrates. This is what inflammation looks like. It's normal tissue that's been invaded by your white blood cells doing what they do. Normally, it's an awesome thing. Now, we have to keep the risk in view. Always we should keep risk in view. So this is from the CDC. Uh, you can see the link down there. I put all the links in the show notes down below this, of course. Uh, as always, make your job easier if you want to follow up on any of this stuff. So these are provisional death counts for coronavirus disease. This is the, again, we don't know how well the CDC has done in terms of recording things of COVID versus with COVID. Actually, the CDC just collects the aggregate data. So we need to know how well the hospitals have done at recording these things, how, how accurate the death certificates are. But understand that hospitals were heavily incentivized, and by extension, the doctors heavily incentivized to put COVID on the death certificate. And by incentivized, I mean they got paid more money. 
right? Very simple, simple thing to follow. So I'm not really clear how much I can trust any of these things at this point in time. I trust all cause mortality more than anything. Um, and by this measure, this is total deaths right here, but here we see it broken down by age groups here. And pretty much the highest dotted line is the oldest people. And then, you know, as we just as we go down, they get younger and younger and younger and younger. And so you can see when you're down here in the very youngest ages, these are really flat lines down here. Um, they kind of hug the baseline. And the reason for that is uh, very simply that not that many kids actually die from COVID. But we just recently found out that reported pediatric COVID-19 deaths, they plummet. Good news, I guess. After the CDC fixed a coding logic error. So this is even at the CDC side. They, they're, they're getting data in which itself may be bad or incomplete or corrupted. And they even messed that up when they finally got it. Um, so this just came to us from March 21st right here. Uh, it says, after CDC resolved the error, the pediatric death figure reported on its COVID data tracker dropped to 1,339 all-time deaths, a reduction of about 24% from the figure they reported the day prior. So good news. One quarter fewer uh, children had died uh, in a single day. CDC spokeswoman Jasmine Reed told the Washington Examiner the agency's algorithm was accidentally counting non-COVID deaths related, uh, related deaths in its data tracker. Quote, an adjustment was made to COVID data trackers mortality data on March 14th involving the removal of 72,277, including 416 pediatric deaths, deaths previously reported across 26 states because CDC's algorithm was accidentally counting deaths that were not COVID-19 related. Hmm. Continuing, Reed said, working with near real-time data in an emergency is critical to guide decision-making, but may also mean we often have incomplete information when data are first reported. You have one job, CDC. You got one job. Come on now. I mean, let's, can, we be, can we be honest about this? It's not a real-time emergency anymore. In fact, we could argue how much... I think the emergency was kind of over by June 2020 when we had all of our information on early treatments and we knew how to deal with this stuff and it was no longer a big mystery and we didn't have to put people on ventilators and we could... you know, Doctors who were using early treatments were having phenomenal success and the CDC's job was to collect those successes, share them broadly so we could all share in them. They didn't do that. They didn't even figure... I mean, there are people whose only job it is, is to maintain these databases. I could understand if you're like, well, you know, um, there's only one person working at the CDC. They're doing a lot of different things. They finally got around to fixing this. This is a multi-billion dollar agency. This is their job. And yes, she's absolutely right. Work, um, uh, working with real-time data and emergency is critical to guide decision-making. Now, what kind of decisions might we guide um, with that kind of data? Well, um, maybe this, you know, so back in November, what, you know, when they could have, when they had this bad data flowing in, we saw stuff like this, this is just a random example I pulled. So this is assistant state epidemiologist, uh, Dr. Jane Kelly, I believe this is South Carolina says, um, you know, quote, uh, please don't let social media debates Self-proclaimed experts or unfounded online resources influence this important decision on whether or not to get your child vaccinated. Kelly, uh, the state has... Uh, Kelly, 
The state has seen more than 56,000 cases of COVID in children ages 5 to 11 to date and called the Pfizer vaccine an incredible tool that can help stop that number from rising. But wait a minute, cases, is a case the same thing as is actually harm from that? Because a lot of cases are just asymptomatic, kind of like the sniffles. At any rate, continuing quote from Kelly, COVID-19 nationally has become the sixth leading cause of death for this age group. That sounds bad, right? Sixth leading cause of death. So you can that's going to shape that this is going to inform this data was critical. It informed Dr. Kelly's position, who then informed all the parents of the state to say, listen, your child, the sixth leading cause of death. And by the way, this is a preventable cause of death. This is the argument. This is a completely preventable cause of death. Sixth leading cause of death for your child. Of course, you're going to take action on that. Problem is, turned out to be wrong, that data. So here's what the impact of that error was. They said here on, um, I think on March 15th, that 537 children ages zero to four had died of COVID. They downgraded that to 407. That's a difference of 130. In fact, they had to impact every single age group coming down like this. So when we look at that, and we can still, I'll still question whether the 407 is even accurate at all. And once we dig into that, if it is accurate, to what extent did those 407 children have significant other underlying morbidities, such as maybe cancer, cystic fibrosis, um, cerebral palsy, something that would be an, an indicator for higher risk from any respiratory illness, COVID or otherwise. So at any rate, um, that's a pretty big uh, downgrade right there. CDC tried to sort of uh, walk past it as, as lightly as they could. But let me put this in context for you real quick. So when I look at the even these numbers and I take them at full face value and I say, okay, 407 in 0 to 4, 5 to 11, 309, 12 to 15, 339. Okay, what does that really mean? So when we look at the population uh, in the United States, we find that the percent of children that survived the great COVID pandemic across all years. So that's 2020, 21, now into as current as the CDC data is up through 2022. We find um, that 99.998% of all children in each of those age buckets down there up to age 15, which is just where I ran the data, 99.998% of them survived the great pandemic. So that's the actual risk factor. So when we say sixth leading cause of death. That's one way to frame it. The other way is to say your child, regardless of health status, had a 0.002% chance across two full years of pandemic of dying from this particular disease, 0.002. It's a pretty small risk. I just like keeping risks in um, in proportion. By the way, when we look at this survival rate across the world, we see that everybody, and this is every all ages, not, not just children, here's the percentage of the world population that has not died from COVID. It's an important number. It's at least 99.9 in all of these um, areas right here, but let's just widen this out a tiny bit more. Let's just shrink this back. We can now see that it uh, ranges from a low of 99.93 in Brazil, so they had a, their overall population faced a 0.07% mortality from COVID uh, on up to a high of 99.99 in Africa. Somebody ought to look into that. Australia, 99.99. Uh, India, 99.99. Hmm. Let's go out one more digit just because, you know, what the heck, three digits is always fun. So 
Here we can see in Australia so far, because of their incredible containment measures and the, the approach they took to it, you can argue whether that was uh, an appropriate response or not. Was it worth it? It's a question that I think is worth asking. Australia had a 99.996%, but look at China, 99.999, three nines. There's a 0.001% chance that you died of COVID if you're in China. Again, if we believe the statistics, you know where I stand. I think all these statistics are a little bogus. At any rate, the point being, uh, these are really incredibly high survival rates. We would be having a completely different conversation, and I would have a completely different tone if we were saying that this was more like 97% or 94% survivals or something like that. The Spanish flu would have had a 97 point something um, some around 3% of people died from that. Or if this was like a MERS outbreak where you had a 40% death rate uh, among afflicted people, that would be, again, a very different conversation. But these numbers, just to keep the risk in perspective, says, mm. um, and by the way, with, with appropriate treatments now, I believe we can, and with Omicron, which is very mild, this is now entirely possible to have these numbers get even smaller over time. And if we took a snapshot from this point forward, I bet it's going to be 90 with early treatment, as long as your country isn't blocking effective early treatments, 99.999 really ought to be the survival rate over time across the whole population uh, for this particular dread pandemic. Conclusion here for 55 uh, myocarditis. It's not mild ever. Stop. Stop saying it's mild. It's like a mild death or a mild stroke. Not mild. Uh, stop. Two-thirds of children or youth with vaccine-induced myocarditis, as rare as that might be, still have detectable damage after three to eight months. We need more study about this. This is consistent with the relatively few autopsy and histological findings that we do have. So it, it points to an inflammatory response triggered by the vaccines that damages heart tissue and leaves scarring in its survivors. Now, this is just myocarditis. There's a whole host of other side effects, adverse events that can also result from this that are neurological in origin. Um, in etiology, there's uh, different things that can happen in your circulation system, on and on and on. This is just for this, just, just this one component, which is the myocarditis. There could well be many other effects that have not been included yet in this particular analysis. Healthy youth, therefore, should not be given vaccines until this issue is better understood. Healthy youth should not be given vaccines until this issue is better understood. I said that twice. Why? Because it's really that important. At a minimum, parents need to be fully informed about this risk. Okay? Immediate treatment, it can obviously help. We saw that uh, with that N of 1, with the corticosteroids. That, that's possibly helpful. But if, if there are any signs of, of carditis at all, myocarditis, your beats are too high, they're too slow, you have breathing difficulties, you have chest pains, any of those things, get thee to a good doctor, a good doctor, pronto, not one who's going to say, looks like anxiety, something like that. Where there is risk, there must be choice. That's a quote from Dr. Robert Malone at the Defeat the uh, Mandates march that happened in D.C., by the way. There's another Defeat the Mandates uh, gathering coming up soon in um, in the Los Angeles region, I believe. So, uh Look for look at on Twitter. I'll, I'll be posting about that soon. Um, so immediate treatment can really help. And by the way, informed consent requires information. Informed. We need the information. That the CDC can't even keep reasonably accurate death statistics is damaging all on itself, let alone find its way out of its mental 
um, you know, cage that it's in to begin to actually ask and answer the question so that we can have an informed conversation. What is the risk? What is the benefit? Because again, I will say very clearly, the benefit for vaccination above a certain age and a certain morbidity profile and or I should say, because you could have a morbidity profile at a young age that would maybe indicate that there's a clear benefit. There's a clear non-benefit at a certain health and age profile, right? Because the risk from COVID is so close to zero. How do you beat zero, right? You can't. You can only make zero worse, right, in this story. And then there's a gray zone in between, right? So generally speaking, let's call that gray zone from 40 to 60, right? Um, But below that and above that, things get a little bit clearer. That's the conversation we should be having, but we still don't have appropriate risk assessments so that we can actually assess the full risk. Why don't we have that? It's another question to be asked at another time. All right. Speaking of informed consent, uh, as a reminder, I'm going to be starting a new live cast. So if you like this, I'm going to be starting a new live cast. I'm going to have special guests coming in. Arlene is amazing. And we're going to be sitting in this studio and we're going to be talking live. So if you want to chat with us live, get involved. Livecast is a livecast. We'll be in the studio live. Your chats uh, showing up on the side will be part of our experience, part of your experience. We'll be responding to questions and we'll be talking about the state of the world and where things are going. We'll be talking about issues like this, mostly um, where things are going politically and economically and environmentally and uh, medically and all that. So any of the current topics, come join us. That's going to be Thursday night at 7 o'clock. So we're going to be running those on Thursdays at 7 And the title of that show is Informed Consent, again. All right. Um, As a last reminder, the value that people get at Peak Prosperity, we've got a great tribe. I love having people over at Peak Prosperity. So uh, just recently, uh, Sketchy Poodle wrote, you just made every penny of my membership entirely worthwhile, Chris, and probably not enough to cover the the value truth be told. You see uh, Acorn Endeavors is talking about mass formation psychosis, this thing that you're able to have this conversation with me calmly, right? We have these conversations all the time at Peak Prosperity. So come on by if, you, if you're interested in subjects like that, and please become part of our tribe. We'd love to have you. Um, note, uh, it, writing as well, Acorn says, even when confronted with hard data, well-educated family and colleagues will not re-examine their thought processes and conclusions. Never before has it been more important to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. To be able to maintain clear thinking and integrity when the world around us doesn't make sense. I'm so grateful for this group of thinkers. So um, that is what we have going on here at Peak Prosperity. we got critical thinkers, and we'll talk about anything. We'll talk about um, how the Ukraine war, all the context that led up to it, what actually is in play, looking at it against a larger geopolitical backdrop, not just like democracy, good, Putin, bad. We don't do that kind of binary thinking. We're interested in the complexity and the context that makes this world actually tick. By the way, part two of this particular program back at Peak Prosperity, I'm going to be talking about the recession risks that are coming up. This energy shock is extraordinary, as bad as COVID was. It wasn't that bad for for most of the people in terms of an overall mortality rate. It was terrible in terms of government responses, overreach, uh, big tech censorship, mass psychosis, people losing friends, families, neighbors over something that really shouldn't have lost any any of those contacts over. That that world is now coalescing around our economy and bad decisions, supply chain disruptions, an energy shock that's extraordinary, a food 
shortage situation that's coming really bad. We've got bonds blowing up right now. All of this needs to be talked about because as bad as COVID was, more people are going to be hurt and harmed by the bursting of the central bank bubbles that is now underway. I believe the pin has found the surface of that bubble. Now we're just waiting for this slow motion uh, bursting to actually unfold into people's lives. That's what we need to talk about because that's what you should be prepared for. And this is why I talk about resilience. Financial resilience, very important. But your social resilience, how much social capital do you have? What is your financial capital? Important. But your social capital, more important in terms of how your future is going to unfold, in terms of how much you thrive versus merely survive what's coming. And above all of those, more important than that is your emotional capital. And to have that calm bearing so that you can face the world and its many predicaments and problems with an astute, clear mind is having an appropriate educational context firmament that you can build off of. And it's knowing what's happening so you're not surprised. And it's being able to rapidly adjust your thinking to the new situation as it's unfolding, maybe even before it unfolds, so that you can be ready in advance. That's what we teach at Peak Prosperity. That's my particular gift. I'm a very fast adjuster. When the data changes, hey, I change too. Listen, in all of these things, I'd rather be a year early than a day late. So come on by Peak Prosperity. Check us out there. Love to have you there. Great tribe of people, but we're just trying to figure out how do we thrive through this next coming period of time, which is going to be fairly disruptive. All right. That is all I have for you today. We will see you hopefully at the live cast Thursday night, informed consent, find it at this channel, and then it'll have its own new channel uh, when it really gets going. All right. See you there or next time. Bye.